You are listening to an RPA production, where people gather. Ladies and gentlemen, Real Paranormal Activity is proud to present Terry's Mysterious Moments. Welcome to Season 2 of Terry's Mysterious Moments. Thank you for listening to the show. I hope you find something interesting. Or maybe something spooky. Or maybe something just... Mysterious. Good evening, everybody. I hope you had a wonderful Christmas time, and I hope you'll have a wonderful New Year's as well, as this will be released either on New Year's Day or just after. Well, let's get into the story, shall we? The Red Paths had it all. They were one of the richest families in Canada, heirs to an impressive sugar fortune. John James Redpath, his wife Ada, had five children, Amy, Peter, Reggie, Harold, and Clifford. By all reports, the Redpaths were a close family, although they seemed to keep to themselves. On the surface, the only thing extraordinary about them was their great wealth. That was about to change. What happened on Thursday, June 13th, 1901 at the Redpath Mansion in Montreal. Based on the available evidence, it is contended that Clifford Redpath, in an agitated state, confronted his mother, shot her in the back of the head, then turned the gun on himself in a murder-suicide. Clifford's motives, however, remain a mystery. Within the Redpath family, there was little speculation just an impenetrable wall of silence broken only by an anonymous description. Clifford burst into the house and rushed up the stairway into his mother's bedroom. In so doing, he passed Sister Amy and Brother Peter, who were in the parlor without greeting them. There was heard a loud exchange of words between Clifford and Ada. Two shots were heard. Peter followed by Rosa Shallow, a servant, climbed the stairs to find his mother and brother lying mortally wounded on the floor a few feet from each other. 
anonymous family member in 1970s, based on an earlier conversation with Amy Redpath, was the source of this information. The Redpath family did not seek a high social profile, nor did they like publicity. Personal issues, feelings, and moods were never addressed, as they may have been in other social or economic circumstances. Family problems were never openly discussed. Nevertheless, Amy and her brothers were open and warm within the family circle. Amy, the eldest and only daughter, took her responsibilities to heart. Her mother, Ada, had been in ill health for many years, so Amy assumed care of the household, hiring maids and providing financial advice for her younger brothers. The exception was Harold. In 1901, there was much family pride and concern for Reggie, who in 1900 had joined the Mounted Rifles in Alberta and traveled to South Africa with his regiment and horses to support British forces in the Boer War. Peter's efforts to control his tuberculosis occupied most of his energy in the last few years of his life. While all five children supported and helped their mother, Peter, Reggie, and Harold were otherwise occupied. Ada grew to rely heavily on Amy and especially Clifford, who had a close relationship with his mother. Ada's ill health began long before widowhood. In a letter of 1880 written from New York to his children, John James Redpath, the family patriarch, Ada's husband, refers to his wife's need to spend a day recovering from a carriage ride around the park. There was no clear diagnosis for Ada, but based on her symptoms, she may have suffered from rheumatoid arthritis or some other autoimmune disease. She may have also suffered from depression, possibly due to her illnesses. There are many references to her poor eyesight, pain, and neuralgia in her letters to Clifford, Amy, Reggie, and Peter. Family rumors suggested that Clifford had had an affair with one of the family's maids. Even though affairs of this kind were commonplace in that era, an affair could have threatened Ada's emotional status quo. Family members also suggested that Clifford had purchased two guns in town, contrary to the coroner's report that stated no gun had been seen in the bedroom. Perhaps Clifford's state of mind was so agitated that he was unaware of his actions. What was the extent of Ada's influence on Clifford? Clifford's cousin, Helen Redpath, who had joined the Order of St. Bridget in Sweden, in England, wrote a heartfelt remembrance of Clifford, which hung under his portrait in Cyan Abbey, Devonshire. The portrait disappeared after Helen's death. There was no such honor for Ada there, nor any other known memorial. Ada's and Clifford's funerals were private events. There is some evidence that letters of bereavement may have been destroyed. Amy states in a letter, two months after the deaths, for example, that she was busy tearing up old letters. Of the letters addressing the tragedy that remained, there are few, if any, references to Ada. By contrast, there is immense sympathy in various eulogies for Clifford. Even if Clifford did pull the trigger, did Amy and her brothers silently blame Ada? 
Did they see her expectations of Clifford and her need for his attention as a justification for his actions? We may never know. This next story is a mystery that's captured the imaginations of conspiracy theorists for more than a century. Just four days before Christmas of 1900, three lighthouse keepers seemingly vanished into thin air from one of the remote Flannan Islands off the northwest coast of Scotland in the Outer Hebrides Islands. Not a single shred of evidence was ever found to point to what might have happened, and theories over the years claim the men were killed by pirates, eaten by seabirds, and even kidnapped by aliens. Now the author of a new book has finally shown a light on their Marie Celeste-style disappearance. Leading naturalist John Love, who has extensively researched the tragedy 20 miles off the tip of Lewis in the Outer Hebrides, claims two of the keepers had been previously fined for not storing gear properly in a prior storm, and that must have been in the back of their minds. Instead of staying out of the fear scale, they ventured out to make sure their equipment was safe, only to be hit by a huge wave. As part of his book, A Natural History of Lighthouses, Mr. Love managed to piece together a complete assessment of the mystery based on all the available records to explain what happened to James Ducat, Thomas Marshall, and Donald MacArthur. Mr. Love said, It was only after 1912 when English poet Wilfred Wilson Gibson published his epic, Flannan Isle, that the story began to assume much of an air of mystery, speculation, and even intrigue. Quoting Mr. Love, For me and many others, including lighthouse keepers themselves, there is no mystery and never has been. There is no need to invoke the sinister or the paranormal. It was purely a tragic act of nature that the men got swept away by abnormally rough seas. His research has revealed Thomas Marshall had previously been branded negligent and fined five shillings after equipment was washed away during a fierce gale. With this hefty fine at the back of the men's minds, Mr. Love believes they may have ventured out to make sure everything was secured, sealing their fate. Again, quoting Mr. Love, Since it was not permitted for all three to abandon the lighthouse, only two of the men must have gone down to the landing to secure the gear. The third, Donald MacArthur, would have remained back in the lighthouse. But when his companions did not return, he would have been concerned for their safety, or else, perhaps, he saw a great wave approach and rushed to warn them. MacArthur may have been too late, only then to be swept away himself. He says the keepers, who were the first at the newly built lighthouse, may not have been totally familiar with winter storm conditions around the island. Mr. Love said that during construction there was further tragedy when the clerk of works died from natural causes and a horse called Billy, slung ashore by crane, also died. Again quoting Mr. Love, sadly when Billy the horse came to be taken off, he struggled out of his sling and fell to his death into the sea below. 
Some of the story of this one is that they found a log or a diary written by one of the men stating that they were under a severe storm and then suddenly the storm ended and says God is overall but then the men were gone. Part of the story also says that this lighthouse could be seen from another point of view and the people at the other point of view said there were no storms in the area. So there, there's a bunch of mystery and, and this is called the Eileen Moore Lighthouse. In 1950, a man with mutton chop sideburns and Victoria-era duds popped up in Times Square. Witnesses said he looked startled, and then a minute later, he was hit by a car and killed. The officials at the morgue searched his body and found the following items in his pockets. A copper token for a beer worth five cents, bearing the name of a saloon which was unknown even to older residents of the area. A bill for the care of a horse and the washing of a carriage drawn by a livery stable on Lexington Avenue that was not listed in any address book. About $70 in old banknotes. Business cards with the name Rudolph Fentz, F-E-N-T-Z, and an address on Fifth Avenue and a letter sent to this address in June 1876 from Philadelphia. None of these objects showed any signs of aging. Captain Hubert Rim of the Missing Persons Department of the New York Police Department tried using this information to identify the man. He found that the address on Fifth Avenue was part of a business. Its current owner did not know Rudolph Fence. Fence's name was not listed in the address book. His fingerprints were not recorded anywhere, and no one had recorded him missing. Rim continued the investigation and finally found a Rudolph Fence Jr. in a telephone book of 1939. Rim spoke to the residents of the apartment building at the listed address, who remembered Fence and described him of a man as a man of about 60 years of age who had worked nearby, but after his retirement he had moved to an unknown location in 1940. Contacting the bank, Rim was told that Fence died five years before, but his widow was still alive, but lived in Florida. Rim contacted her and learned that her husband's father had disappeared in 1876 at age 29. He had left the house for an evening walk and never returned. Now the facts of the story are that this story was published a number of times in the 70s and 80s until 2000 after the Spanish magazine Mas Ala published a representation of the events as a factual report. There was a folklore researcher named Chris Aubeck who investigated the description to check its veracity. The research led to the conclusion that the people in advance of the story invented all were fictional, although he could not find the original source. Pastor George Murphy claimed in 2002 that the original source was either from a 1952 Robert Henlein science fiction anthology entitled Tomorrow the Stars, or 
or The Collier's Magazine from 15 September 1951. The true author was the renowned science fiction writer Jack Finney, who lived from 1911 to 1995. And the Fence episode was part of the short story, I Am Scared, which was published in Collier's first. This meant that the fictional character and the source of the story was, were finally identified, so everyone thought. No copies of the story have ever been found, and Finney died before he could be questioned. Here's the twist. In 2007, a researcher working for the then Berlin News Archive found a newspaper story in the archives from April 1951 reporting the story almost as it was reported recently. The newspaper archive was printed some five months before the short story sourced as the origin. And what's even odder, a number of researchers have claimed to have found evidence of the real Rudolph Fence and proof of his disappearance at age 29 in 1876. This next story is a maritime story of five strong men who went leisure fishing on a beautiful day in Hawaii but never returned. I know it kind of gives you a, a vibe of Gilligan's Island, doesn't it? Only supposed to be a three-hour tour. Subsequently, one of the men reappeared ten years later on a remote atoll in the Pacific Ocean, only to add another twist to the case. This is what is called the Sarah Joe Mystery. Maritime history is awash with stories of all sorts of unexplained mysteries and stories. Some of them are precisely that, just stories. Mariners that set sail from one port either return to the same one or berth at a different one with wild tales along the theme of the one that got away. The seas and the oceans of the world are notorious for not giving up their secrets without a fight. The HMS Daedalus Sea Serpent, Flight 19, the Mary Celeste, Amelia Earhart, and the Titanic are just a few of the more popular oceanic mysteries from the past century or two. The Sarah Joe mystery began on 11 February 1979 when a quintet of friends boarded a Boston whaler named the Sarah Joe. This modest vessel was 17 feet in length and had an 85 horsepower engine. It was unequipped for any major sea voyages. When the boat cast off from the town of Hana on the island of Maui, the conditions for sailing could not have been any better. There was barely any wind and the surface was as smooth as glass. Within two hours of departure, close to noon, the local weather worsened. None of the five had checked local sailing conditions or the weather reports, preferring to keep eyes on the horizons instead. This was a typical action on the part of amateur sailors that only expect to be out to sea for a matter of hours. Had any of them done so, they may have become aware of a major low-pressure system approaching the islands. If the storm that hit the town was any indication, then the conditions out at sea must have been horrendous and wholly unsuitable for even the most expert of sailors. Gale force winds and torrential rain 
more than likely tossed the boat around like a rag doll. A number of larger fishing vessels managed to make it back to port and reports suggested that the swells peaked at a height of 40 feet. Even though hope was futile at best, none of the locals and relatives of the missing crew were willing to just sit tight and do nothing. A search of the coastline took place, even though visibility was about as bad as it could get. However, conditions were too rough to search further out to sea until the storm abated. The Sarah Joe mystery fueled a huge search. On the following day after the disappearance, the Coast Guard recommenced its mission. Over time, it grew into a large flotilla of ships, boats, and aircraft. For five days, the search covered 70,000 square miles of ocean, but they found no trace of the five men or the boat. The real problem that the investigators had was that nobody knew in what direction the group went or where they ended up. The strong currents of the Alinuehaha Channel, those of you in Hawaii, I hope I said that right, didn't help matters either. They even brought in homing pigeons specifically trained to locate people stranded at sea. Almost a week after the storm, experts concluded that the Sarah Joe wrecked and sank with all hands on board. Family and friends of the missing men weren't so quick to abandon their hopes. They pooled their cash and resources and managed to maintain a search for an extra three weeks. Their main focus was on some of the more remote islands in the hope that somehow the boat had made landfall on one of them. No trace of the men or the boat could be found. A memorial service was held for the crew which would go on to become an annual event. They were Scott Mormon, who was 27, Benjamin Kalama, who was 38, Peter Hanchett, who was 31, Patrick Wessner, 26, and Ralph Maliakini, I believe it's the way it's pronounced, who was 27 also. With the search being called off, that just might have been the end of things. The public had forgotten about the Sarah Joe. It was just another tragedy in the long list of disappearances at sea. However, a decade later, several of the original search party men members were on a routine wildlife mission in the uninhabited islands of the Western Pacific for the National Marine Fishery Service. The Marshall Islands and the remote Taongi Atoll, also known as the Bokak Atoll, were approximately 2,200 miles southwest of Hawaii. On September 10, 1988, biologist John Naughton put himself in the middle of this mystery for the second time. While working at Taongi Atoll, he came across an abandoned fiberglass boat on the coastline. He could only determine part of the registration of the boat but it was enough to ascertain that it had come from somewhere in the Hawaiian Islands. Further investigation carried out at the time established that Naughton had solved the mystery of what happened to the Sarah Joe. But that only raised more questions. There was nothing inside or around the boat itself. They looked for signs of life, notes, or any kind of equipment that might provide clues. 
However, there were none. Naughton and his team took a moment to decide what to do next, and they decided they would search the surrounding area. Almost immediately, the team made another discovery about a hundred yards from the boat. A makeshift cross, fashioned from driftwood, was sticking out of the top of a shallow grave. Also, a human mandible bone protruded out of the cairn of coral and shingle stones. As they examined the grave closer, they saw blank pieces of paper resting on top of the skeleton. All of this paper was loose, but was stacked like an unbound manuscript or book. In between each slice of paper was what Naughton would later describe as tinfoil. The bundle of three-inch square papers was roughly three-quarters of an inch thick. They did not serve any function that the biology team could imagine. The four men collectively decided that any further excavation of the grave might be disrespectful. Thus, they took no additional attempts to proceed. Investigators sent the mandible to a forensics lab for testing. Results revealed that the remains were those of Scott Mormon. Several other smaller bones found beyond the gravesite also matched his. They did not find any other remains on the entire islet. The outboard motor from the Sarah Joe remained missing as well. It does seem likely that Mormon and the boat drifted to the area more by luck than by judgment. But what about the remaining crew? No trace of them has ever been found. This leads to the obvious question that nobody has yet provided a satisfactory answer to. Who buried Scott Mormon? One of the more plausible theories revolves around an ancient oriental burial tradition. Chinese traditionally include in a coffin the provision of small pieces of paper or paper money separated by gold or silver foil. These items are interred with the corpse as a means of fortune for the afterlife. This matches the type of burial the researchers found at Taongi Atoll. Hence, it is possible that a fishing boat could have come across the deceased or ailing Mormon. If they were fishing illegally, they may have provided him with a proper burial according to their local customs without reporting it. Now the question has to be asked about the remaining four. Plausibly, the storm took all four men. Perhaps this left the unfortunate Scott Mormon alone in the middle of the Pacific with little to no supplies or much hope of rescue. There's a lot more to the Sarah Jo mystery than the disappearance and reappearance of a single man of from five. The Sarah Jo was not the most sturdy of vessels constructed and was really only designed for coastal use. How the boat survived one of the worst storms on record and ended up on a desolate atoll thousands of miles away is quite an accomplishment. Experts that better understand events such as this reckon that the drift time between Hawaii and the Marshalls must have been somewhere in the region of three months. That in itself does raise a question or two. Four years before Naughton got to the island, another research team landed there and reported nothing out of the ordinary. Witnessing a discarded boat might seem trivial enough to omit it from official reports, but a grave? So where was the boat between leaving Hawaii on 11 February 1979 and 1984 
when the original expedition made, land, made landfall on the Marshalls. The Sarah Joe mystery endures. Well, that's this week's set of, show, of stories, folks. I hope you enjoyed them. Again, I hope you have a wonderful new year. This this will be the first show of 2019. I wish you all a happy new year. Remember to listen to Aaron Hunter on Mondays with Real Paranormal Activity, the podcast. Listen to Aaron Frail on Tuesdays with Aaron's Horror Show. Listen to Terry's Mysterious Moments on Wednesdays with me, Terry, from Texas. And remember that on the first Saturday of the month, Buried Secrets Paranormal will include a video episode with some other episodes maybe added on on Saturdays, apparently, as we go along. Anyway, that's it for this week. I hope you've enjoyed the show. I enjoyed bringing you these stories. And we'll talk to you next week. Okay? Have a good week. <laughs>